We are working through the book of Luke, and our text this morning is Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39. Luke 5, 33 through 39. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers and do so, or, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the skins will be destroyed. But new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, desires new, for he says, the old is good. Let's pray. Uh, Father, I believe that everyone who's here this morning is here by divine appointment. God, I pray that your word would bring life into the deepest parts of the souls and hearts of those who are here. God, I pray that hearts would be joyed even in the midst of maybe really difficult circumstances because they see the eternal benefits of knowing you through Christ. God, I pray that uh, uh, you would make us more like you uh, through this text and that you would create new life in us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, about uh, 20 years ago, probably like 22 years ago, on a nice day like today, uh, uh, spring or, or summer day, you might find me in a big red Buick with my friend who was a cowboy. He was a bull rider. In fact, uh, he took a, a big old Buick and painted it uh, candy apple red, put a big old Copenhagen skull sticker on the door panel. He was a true cowboy. <laughs> and uh, and you might find me cruising with him in that Buick uh, down 212 in Watertown, and, you know, cruising the strip with music blasting. And the song you might have heard is the Jesus Freak song by DC Talk. And uh, we would just screaming out, what will people think when they find out I'm a Jesus freak? <laughs> Those are good memories I have. Um, and uh, really, it's something of what happened to the Pharisees when they run in, ran into Jesus. They saw a freak of a man, and they saw a freak, or freaks as his followers, people who were different. In fact, I looked up in the Webster Dictionary, what is the 
definition for freak. I want to make sure it's nothing bad or something. And uh, here's what I found. A person regarded as strange because of their unusual appearance or behavior. This is always marked Jesus Christ. It's always marked his followers. Uh, listen, listen to what the scripture says about how exclusive, how different Jesus is from everything else. John 14.6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now you tell me that's not narrow. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father. No one goes to heaven to live with God apart from Him. Acts 4.12, Luke writes, And there's salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven are given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other name except Christ by which man must be saved. How about 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul writes, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ. You can't add anything to Jesus, to the foundation he laid in regards to your salvation. You can't add anything to it. You can build on top of what's been laid a cornerstone. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone from which a building is built. The apostles preached to us the gospel helped explain what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection meant. And you can't build outside the foundation. It'll come crumbling down. Christ is the only way. 1 Timothy 2.5, a verse my daughters could quote to you, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So, you have a holy God, you have sinful people, and sin can't enter heaven. Darkness cannot have any place in the light. It's the problem that the whole Bible seeks to answer. How in the world can sinful, rebellious people, the Bible says that's all humanity, ever be united with their creator and avoid the eternal punishment for rebelling against him. Because the price of our sin is eternal punishment in hell because the one whom we offended is eternally glorious. It's what justice demands. But this verse just tells us there's one God, there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus so Jesus Christ, God's Son, who is 100% God and 100% man, stands between, puts his hand on man, puts his hand on God, and because he can mediate for us, 
sinful man can have a relationship with him. But there's no other way. There's there's no other mediator. There's one God, there's one mediator. There's no other way. We needed a perfect sacrifice that came in Christ. We live in a culture that wants to scream when they run into this gospel. Because what's normal today, if you want to be normal, if you want to be accepted, if you don't want to be a freak, if you want to be a good person, then you pretty much have to say this. This is what I believe, but whatever you believe is fine for you. And I'm sure that as long as people are trying the best they can, there's a lot of roads that lead to heaven. If you say there's only one way and it's Christ, you're a freak. Are you kidding me? Not only that, you're immoral, you're judgmental, you're exclusive. You're not inclusive of other ideas and other people. This is what you will get, and this is what Jesus got, and this is what his followers received. Last week we saw uh, Jesus as he declared a paralyzed man forgiven. And they all got upset and said, who can forgive but God alone? And then he said, what's more difficult, to say you are forgiven or to say pick up your bed and walk? And the paralyzed man, so, but he said, so you know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Get up, walk, and he walks. This is a different type of man than people were used to. And then Jesus goes to the biggest outcast in society, the a tax collector. He comes up to Levi and he says, follow me. I want you to be one of my disciples. And all the religious leaders of the day, every, even normal people would say, What is he doing? This is so odd that he would go to a tax collector who's ripping people off, has basically, is, is basically stealing from his own people. That's who he's going to pick to follow him. And not only that, because he's been ripping people off so well, Levi's rich and he throws a huge party with a bunch of sinners. Probably prostitutes. Drunks, the outcast of society, and Jesus goes to the party. And the Pharisees are standing there saying, what in the world? Jesus and his disciples are accepting this party? Who is this? We see and we remember that the Pharisees, their name means set apart ones. But they're not set apart as freaks. In fact, those who aren't Pharisees kind of wish they were like them. That's who you ought to be like. Those religious people who they fast twice a week. They give way more money to God than anyone else. But I'll tell you, 
what, who looked like freaks in their day. It was Jesus. It was his disciples. And we'll see that uh, beginning in verse 33. Here's the main drive of my message. My call to you today through this text is this. Live your life exclusively according to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Gospel means good news. So listen to me. Live your life exclusively. It's not, he's not just part of your influence. He's all of your influence according to the good news of Jesus Christ. That's radical. But that's what the Scripture calls of us. Look at verse 33. And he said to him, he's speaking, this is linking us to the last, uh, our text last week, speaking to the Pharisees, um, and they said to him, they come to Jesus, and they say, the disciples of John fast and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. They say, now the Pharisees' disciples and John's disciples don't get along <laughs> because the Pharisees came to John's baptism and John said, what in the world are you doing here? This is a place for people to repent of their sin and you guys are a brood of vipers that have no repentance in your heart. Get out of here. But the one thing they both had in common is they both fasted a lot and they both had ritualistic prayers a lot, but this freak, Jesus and his followers, they eat and drink. They're not normal like the rest of the religious people of the day. Remember, the Pharisees see themselves as superior to everyone else. Not, not only do they see themselves superior among their peers, but they trash their fathers, the ones who come before them. Oh, they're just idolaters. You read the Old Testament, our fathers were wicked, they were idolaters. Not only do we follow the law, we add to the law. We do more than what God asks. So these are the types of characters the Pharisees are. Um, they were the ones who Paul was warning Titus to be careful of. He, he, he spoke of people who devote themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people and who turn away from truth. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. So they're the type of people that claim to follow the law, add new laws to it, but reject in the heart what God really wants from them. The Pharisees fast twice a week. The question is about fasting and prayer. Jesus deals with fasting. So if you were a Jew, the reality is there's only one required fast in a year, and that's on the Day of Atonement. When you're going to deny yourself food and drink, and you're going to mourn over your sin and plead to God for mercy. That's the only required fast 
in the Old Testament, but the Pharisees fasted twice a week. It was a new law they made, a new rule, and it was the new norm. Even John's disciples had a similar sort of fasting ritual. But why don't your disciples fast, Jesus? Why don't, why don't they fast like we fast? Now, there's other fasts in the Old Testament, voluntary fast. In, in, in fact, when Jerusalem fell, Zechariah told the people to fast and mourn over their sin. When it looked like the Jews were going to be destroyed... Uh, Esther and the Israel looked to Esther as their only hope. Uh, here's what we're told in Esther 4.3. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So as it looked like, Israel's going to be destroyed by this evil decree from Haman. They begin to weep in their mourning and their fasting. It was a voluntary thing they did. It made sense with the times. But why are Jesus' disciples different? The reason why they're different from the Pharisees and from John's disciples, and for sure with the Pharisees, is that they, they know something the Pharisees don't. The Pharisees don't understand gospel timing, the time of good news. They don't understand gospel exclusivity. They don't, they, they can't imagine something that's totally new from what they've been doing, exclusive from them. Surely your disciples should at least be doing what we're doing, pray the way we pray, fast the way we fast. We might have a difference in theology, but at least you ought to attach these righteous virtues to it. And third, they didn't understand gospel change. They found it crazy that God would want them to actually be different than they are because they had an inflated view of ourselves. So let's look at those three things. Look at Jesus' response in verse 34. And here's where Jesus shows them gospel time. Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? Now, the Pharisees should have been good Jews and had known that God referred to himself as a husband to rebellious Israel, but that he's going to show mercy to her. Isaiah 54, 5 says this, For your maker is your husband. Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth, he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I'll gather you. 
In overflowing anger, for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I'll have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Here's what Israel should have known. Because of their idolatry, that yes, God pulled away for a time to let them see the futility of their idolatry, the emptiness in it, He says, I'm going to come with compassion and give you mercy. In chapter 62, he says this, For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Israel should have been looking for a groom, for a husband to come and be her redeemer. But the problem is, is the Pharisees don't need redeeming in their minds. They think if anyone comes, they're going to, the Messiah would come and say, there's the good ones. There was no wayward bride looking for a redeemer, looking for a bridegroom that's going to save the day. Jesus really introduces this in, New, in the New Testament, the, this idea that he is the bridegroom and the church is the bride. John even knew this. In John 3.28, he says this, uh, John the Baptist, he says, you yourselves bear witness, or bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his this joy of mine is now complete. He's saying, the bridegroom is shown, shown up here. Jesus is right there. There's your hope, Israel. My job's done. Time to party. The bridegroom's here. Time to rejoice in the Lord. Jesus is saying, are you kidding me? The bridegroom is here to get the bride, and you want my disciples to mourn and to fast and to be sad? You don't know what time it is. You don't know who's here is Jesus' response. Ecclesiastes 3.4 says there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A wedding is no place to be mourning unless you're the father of the daughter, maybe. It's acceptable a little bit. I'm sure I'm going to be doing that some. But when the bridegroom comes, you party. It's a rejoicing time. It's not a time to be, yeah, we, we're sacrificial. We, we give more than everyone else and we fast. Man, look at, look at this guy over here. His disciples, they're eating and they're drinking and they're hanging out with sinners. Who are these people? Jesus says in verse 35, he says, uh, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they'll fast in those days. When Jesus dies on the cross, they think they lose their only hope. 
who they thought was God now has died. There's fasting, there's mourning when Jesus dies. But he says, not right now. They will fast in the future. This is the first time he points towards his death. But he says, now's not the time. Do you know gospel timing? We're At the end, we're going to look at how practical this is to our lives. Um, I. Howard Marshall says this, The new era of salvation has arrived, and the mournful rites of the past were incompatible with it. Only during the sad days between the death of Jesus and his resurrection would mourning be appropriate. He's pointing towards the fact that it would be odd to see mourners at a wedding. This this is not right. And then he points to the exclusivity of the gospel. So he, he basically gives three parables. The first one is the bridegroom. A parable is a short story where he throws alongside a spiritual truth so that you can understand it better. He's saying, my disciples don't fast because the bridegroom's here. The joy and rejoicing has arrived uh, in his own person. Secondly, uh, he points to how his message and his gospel is incompatible with the Jews of his day. Here's what he says in verse 36. He also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he'll tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. So let's just stop here. Nobody does this, he says. You think I'm weird? He's saying, this would be weird. Let's say my shirt was a $100 shirt. It's not. But let's say I just bought it, $100 shirt. My old shirt over here has got a hole in it. And I'm like, hey, I got an idea. Give me a scissors, honey. Let's cut, uh, let's cut this corner off right here, and let's patch that on to my old shirt. Everyone would scream and say, what are you doing? You're wrecking a new garment to patch an old garment? So there's three points to what he's saying here. First, if, if you look at the text, he says, you'll tear the new garment. If, if, if you're going to make this move, if you're a seamstress here, you're cringing at this, you'll tear the new. The piece from the new will not match the old. The old shirt is a red one. And we're going to have this turquoise plaid Giddy up going on a red shirt. I mean, I might work down in Alabama, but not up here. You know, it's like, it's not going to match. You're going to wreck the first one. It's not going to match the second one. And if you take a new garment, the way Jesus says it in Matthew, is he says the new piece will be unshrunk. The old piece will be shrunk, and if you sew it to it, you'll actually tear the old, and you'll wreck both of them. He's saying to the Pharisees, you can't add one ounce of what you're doing to my ministry. They are 100% incompatible. 
You can't even take a little piece of it and sow it to it. Jesus is saying, I'm more freakish than you know. Not only can we not add these things, these rituals and these rules, the way you've done it in the past, you can't add any of it. And then he he gives another illustration or another parable, verse 37. No one puts new wine in old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it'll be spilled and the skins will be destroyed. But the new wine must be put in fresh wineskins. So what they did is they take the usually the, the skin from the neck of a goat and they would pour n- new wine into it. And as it would ferment, it would expand and the new wine or the new skins would stretch. It was the perfect way to uh, ferment wine. But he says, if you take an old wine skin that's all dried out and has lost its elasticity and you put the new wine in, as it begins to expand, it's going to break the skins and you're going to lose your wine. There's nothing compatible from the old to the new. You can't take my message and pour it into your old ways and make it work. Jesus didn't come as another rabbi in line to just add to it a little bit. In fact, he's what all this was all about. You don't patch Jesus into Judaism When Jesus shows up, all this shadow, all these pointers were pointing to him, and he's arrived. There's a new way to live. In fact, I'm going to quote John MacArthur because it sounds extreme, but I want you to know that this is what all the good scholars I was reading say. He said he, didn't, he did not come merely as a rabbi within a framework of contemporary Judaism, nor did he come to make a few minor tweaks in the existing religious system of his day. Jesus came to preach the gospel, the good news, which fulfilled the Old Testament and was incompatible with Jewish religion of his day. Judaism was concerned with self-righteousness, the gospel with heart righteousness. Judaism was concerned with what men thought, the gospel with what God thinks. Judaism was concerned with external behavior, the gospel with internal attitudes. Both this and the previous illustration drive home the point that Jesus is not simply patching up Judaism. He's teaching something radically new. If the attempt is made to constrict this within the old wineskins of Judaism, the result will be disastrous. There can be no syncretism between what Jesus brings in the old traditions of Judaism. If it were tried, both would be destroyed. Jesus brings a new era and a new fresh approach to God that cannot be mixed with the old traditions. The gospel is a new way. So the new practices of Judaism cannot contain it. Close quote. Here's what the Old Testament's prophets said of this new covenant. Now listen. Behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I make a new covenant. Is that emphasizing sameness or difference? Difference. A new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Is that continuity or discontinuity? Not like the covenant I made with your fathers. My covenant, which they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's the new covenant. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I'll be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. They should have been looking for this big change. When the law of God is written down in their hearts, when they can be changed on the inside. Now listen to me. You might be so broken in your sin. You might be so enslaved to your sin, to your anger, to your hopelessness, that you think, God, maybe God could forgive me. I don't know. But he could never change me. Listen to me. Not only does Jesus want to forgive you, he can change you at a heart level so that you're unrecognizable, so that you become a new creation. Not that's perfect, this side of heaven, but one that actually has taste buds for things that don't destroy you rather than for the sin that does In John 1.17, John writes this, For the law was given through Moses. That's one thing. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Here's what Moses did. He translated down, Okay, humanity, you want to see how good you are? Here's the standard. Here's the law. This law represents my righteousness. How do you measure up? If anyone looks at the law with their eyes open, they become terribly, terribly desperate looking for a Savior. Moses came. He brought the law. Jesus comes with grace and with truth. A different time has arrived. Third, Live according to the gospel's demand for change. Look at what he says in verse 39. And no one after drinking old wine desires new, for he says the old is good. Here's what Jesus knows. He's doing miracles. He has a new teaching that people aren't used to. And he just knows there's some people that won't ever give him a shot. Because they like the old wine the old way. The Pharisees' identity was so built up in their outward religious works and how they've done it their whole life that it doesn't matter how much they hear about the new way. They're not going to try something new. 
They're not going to change. Paul tells the Thessalonians, uh, he talks about how Satan deceives people into being blind. And And he says in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 2, he says, the wicked deception uh, that Satan will have over people is over those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. There's so many people that'll hear the good news, they'll admit they're sinful, they will admit they have no hope, and yet they refuse to love the truth and be saved. And Jesus is saying, some people, they got the old wine, they'll never try the new wine. So how can this be practical to you and me? Last week, we saw the Pharisees come onto the scene, and I warned you, don't think, oh, those are the bad ones, not like me. I I can't relate to them. I'm a good one. All of us can struggle with the root problems like pride, selfishness, and unbelief that the Pharisees were struggling with. So let's see if we can kind of, let's ask God to see into our own hearts and help make us more like Christ, more happy and rejoicing in Him. Look at gospel timing. The Pharisees were grumbling and upset when they ran into Jesus because they didn't know who he was. The Pharisees didn't recognize he was the long-awaited Savior, the one who came to preach good news to the poor and recovery of sight to the blind, forgiveness of sin to the sinner, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is good news when Jesus shows up. But they saw him as unhelpful and uncomfortable because... He exposed their sin. And Jesus wasn't being mean to them. They can't be saved unless they realize who they really are. You and I can forget this and live like Jesus has not come. We can forget what time it is. A marriage that's been struggling for 15 years, ready to call it quits, can forget that their marriage stands between the timeline of the cross and the new heavens and the new earth and all the promises that a believer has, and they can come into my office and say, hopeless. And part of the thing I tell them is, don't you know what time it is? You live after a resurrected Savior who's promised to come back, who's given you the Holy Spirit, who's given you His Word, who's given you the church. And yes, it's hard. You're not in the new heavens and new earth yet. You're still struggling with sin. But you want to tell me it's hopeless and the only option is divorce? We forget what time it is. We forget the reality of how God can work powerfully in our lives. I don't know what it is you struggle with that's been burdening you, but listen to me. Christ 
has come for you. He's come to save you and love you and change you on the inside. And you say, well, I I don't think I could ever. Well, there's forgiveness for all your failure. And there's grace and there's mercy. And there's love that he offers. Now, listen to me. Listen. This is the scariest thing as a preacher. Every one of you are eternal. You will never go into non-existence, whether you want to or not. You might say, my life's tough. I'm going to take my life. You will not go into non-existence. You're eternal. That's what your creator says. You're going to live on forever. After he created you, you will not stop. Now listen, eternity's a long time, and you get a sliver of time that determines where you spend eternity, and now is the time of salvation. Jesus came the first time to be your substitute and say, you want the free gift of salvation? You want life? Do you want a heart that's actually fulfilled with something that can secure you? You want a God who never changes to hold you up? Jesus' death for you promised you good for all eternity. Now listen, your life could end today and the time is up. Or if Jesus comes back today and you haven't clung to him yet, The second time he comes, he doesn't come to die for sins again and give a second chance. He comes back to destroy Satan, the demons, and the ungodly. There is no, oops, a little bit longer. And so the time, know know what time it is. Don't lose hope and don't mess with your soul. Don't. Don't pretend that you know how long you're going to live. I just talked to someone this week that said right now he's not ready to choose Christ. Maybe later. (laughs) You don't know if you have later. All right. Second, live according to gospel exclusivity. Now, how can you and I be like the Pharisees trying to add to Jesus? Let me give you some ideas. Couldn't, can't we add to what Jesus did? Remember this from Galatians? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. You want to add any of your own righteousness to your salvation, it's gone. The person who is saved is the one who knows they're not good enough. They have no hope apart from Him. Every time you or I attempt, now listen to this, to please God in our own strength. Have you ever tried that? Attempted to please God in your own strength, apart from the Spirit, and without being humbled by the truths of the gospel, we are attempting to add self-righteousness to Jesus and to His grace. How many pharisaical struggling hearts do we have here? All of us. How often do you go try to tackle a problem before you pray about it and ask God to help you by the power of the Spirit? What are we doing? We're trying to do it without Jesus. 
Every time we practically seek to live out the gospel truths and make extra biblical rules that cause us to compare ourselves with others, we're just like the Pharisees. So if you read a verse and you say, all right, that means I'm going to get rid of my TV. So then you go get rid of your TV and you look around and says, oh, look at all those TV watchers. You're doing just what they did, adding to what God said in order to compare yourself with others. Every time we seek to have our good works be seen by others, we're just like the Pharisees. Have you ever been okay with sinning in private? I would never do this in front of people. I clean myself up when I go to church, but in private, I'll do all this stuff. Well, we're just like them. We care more about what people think than what God thinks. See what I'm saying? When we bump into the Pharisees in Luke, say, God, show me how I do this. Show me how I lose joy because of this. When you're, when you think, here's the opposite end of that. There's some people that think they're so good, but then there's people that think they're so bad. God could never forgive me. If you knew what I did, God could, God can never forgive what I did. I am so bad. I'm just so ashamed. It's the opposite side of the same thing. You're actually saying, Jesus can't save somebody like me. I would have had to do better and add works to what he did in order to be saved. You see? It's just the opposite side of the spectrum, but it's pride on both sides. Here's the way Martin Luther speaks to those, those of us that, are, that do that, kind of throw a pity party for how bad we are. He says, what is it about your own miserable works and doings that you think could please God more than the sacrifice of his own son? <laughs> Isn't that good? What is it about your works and your accomplishments that makes you think God's going to look at that and be more excited about that than the sacrifice of his son? See, if you know you're broken and sinful, praise God. See Jesus. Don't wallow and mope as though Jesus didn't come to save you and begin to change you. Finally, live according to gospel change. The Pharisees, here's where I see it in my own heart. This is so scary. The Pharisees were in no state of mind to consider change. Here's my question for you. Did you come to church this morning and with the conviction that I need to radically change my life? Did you come in here this morning and say, or did you think, I'm doing pretty good, I'm just going to add some more onto the top of this? Listen. If you didn't come in here and think there needs to be drastic, radical change in your life, you're blind. You're full of pride, full of self-righteousness. The same thing that filled the Pharisees' hearts. Listen to me. If you look back on the past, and this leads you to think you don't need to change much in the future, Spiritual blindness. (laughs) Because looking back at the past 
ought to cause you to get on your face and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, I see my pride. I see my self-righteousness. I see how I compare myself and judge others. Everyone in this room is in desperate need of change. Not so that you may earn your salvation, but so that you can be conformed more into the image of Christ. I can't tell you how often people are surprised at how drastic of change I suggest to their life. Kind of like, oh, yeah, yeah, right. It's like, who do you think you are? Where do you, where do you think you stand? That you you don't think things drastically need to change in your life. Listen to me. Jesus is calling out to you to come have life. Jesus' rules for your life are not to keep you from happiness, but to give you joy. To bring joy to your heart. My prayer is, is that you leave here realizing Jesus has come and he's coming again. And that means even in the midst of the greatest suffering, we can rejoice even in tears deep down inside because of what our Savior did. And just be reminded, don't add to your salvation. Be humbled, admit who you are, and Live your life, live a life of good works because God has given you 100% grace. And finally, never assume that there doesn't need to be radical change in your life. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you for the hope we have in Christ. God, I pray that we would, you would keep us from grumbling and being gloomy when Christ, our righteousness, has come, is died for our sins, risen from the dead, has all authority in heaven and on earth, will never leave us and forsake us. Help this make our hearts happy. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.